turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. 804. The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel.
if my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Second Chronicles 7.14 Welcome to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenley. With me in studio is my wife, Alexandra. Welcome. Thank you for joining us. We're from the National Prayer Chapel in Virginia. We have a broadcast today that may surprise you. This is recognized as the National Day of Prayer. I've attended many national events on the Day of Prayer. But I have come to a rather startling conclusion. It is not a national day of prayer that we need. It is rather a day of national repentance that is so desperately needed. This passage of scripture in Second Chronicles 7 is very clear that if the people of God will humble themselves. You can pray beautiful, lengthy, wonderful prayers, but not humble yourself. And then it says, pray and seek my face. But then it says, and turn from your wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven. The problem we're facing, and it's a stunning problem, is that the majority of people in America who call themselves Christians will not have their prayers answered. But prayer is very important. I believe in the power. I know all of that. The problem is not on God's side. The problem is on our side. Alexandra, there are some scriptures that you were sharing with me that address this question of will God hear the prayer of a person who is walking in rebellion or sin against the Almighty? Yes, well, the scripture does not leave us in the dark on this question. And I will share, this isn't every single scripture on the subject, but I wanted to give you enough that you could see that What I'm going to say is pervasive. It's found throughout the Bible. So I'll begin in Psalm 66. This is verse 18. It says, If I regard or if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. And then the following verse says, But truly God has listened. He has given heed to the voice of my prayer. So whether or not God will listen to our prayers is dependent on whether we are cherishing or regarding iniquity or sin in our heart. Now, this is not only if it's something in our heart, but it's also if it's something in our actions. So we see that when we turn over to the Proverbs. So first we'll look at Proverbs 15, verse 29. This is Proverbs 15, verse 29. 
The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. And then Proverbs 28 verse 9. If one turns his ear away from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. So we know that Jesus said that if we love him, we would keep his commandments. So if we're not keeping the commands of Jesus, if we're knowingly disregarding any command of Jesus, then God will turn away from us because we have turned away from hearing his commands. And it says that even our prayer will be an abomination. So it's not only that God won't listen to us, it's that he's very strongly displeased by our prayers because it's like coming to someone who has deeply offended you and that person wants something from you, but they've never apologized or made any restitution. So that's what it's like. It's why would we think that we have the impunity to ask God to do something for us when we haven't even made amends for how we've offended and hurt him and offended and hurt others? This idea is very strongly expressed in Isaiah 59, verse 2, but I'll begin in verse 1. It says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies, your tongue mutters wickedness. No one enters suit justly, no one goes to law honestly. They rely on empty pleas. They speak lies. They conceive mischief and bring forth iniquity. And this goes on for about 10 more verses. But what I want to point out here, we look around and we say, why aren't the lost being saved? Why isn't the church growing? Why don't we see the book of Acts? Why isn't that our common church experience? Well, this is saying it's not because the Lord's hand is shortened that it cannot save. In other words, it's not God's fault that people aren't being saved. God is willing to save more so than we can probably even imagine. I imagine that God's heart to save is just explosive. I mean, after he gave his son to die so that we could be saved... Imagine how much God desires to actually see people saved. So the problem is not on God's side, but it says it's on our side. This is not speaking about people who have no knowledge of God. If you read this context, it's about the people of Israel. So it's, in other words, it's about those who would identify themselves as people of God, as Christians. And it's because of sin that God will not hear. So it's not because there's no elect around us. It's not because somehow, amazingly, everyone is not elect and that's why God's not saving them. It's not because Jesus said the world would get worse and worse and iniquity would abound and then he would come back and rapture the church. That's not why the lost are not being saved. The only reason why the lost are not being saved is because the church is sinning. 
So some of the examples that he gives is your hands are defiled with blood. We see this commonly in abortion today. Almost 50% of women who have abortions identify as Christians, as either Catholics or Protestants. It says your lips have spoken lies. How common is lying today in the church? You may even be lying. You might be doing what people call white lies. I've heard people say, Sometimes it's better to lie to somebody because telling them the truth would be worse than telling them a lie. That is not true. If you are speaking lies, God will not hear your prayers. So you see this, God has a very high standard and we achieve that standard through faith in Christ, but the standard does have to be met in order for God to answer our prayers. Now we see this reflected in the New Testament as well. So you see that the Jews, having had this background of the prophets, the Proverbs, the Psalms, this idea that God only heard the righteous had come into their understanding. We see this in the Gospel of John chapter 9. You'll recall that Jesus healed a man who was born blind, and the man was called into the synagogue, and he was being interrogated. And they didn't want to believe that Jesus had healed this man. So they called in the man's parents. The man's parents said, he's of age, he can speak for himself. They called the man in a second time. And they don't want to hear that Jesus is the one who's healed him. So the man finally says, why do you keep asking me? Why do you want to hear it again? Do you too want to become his disciples? And they said, they reviled him saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. So the man who had been healed answered, why, this is a marvel. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And then we also know from the book of James, it says the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth not much. Not any man, not a sinner, but of a righteous man. But the last scripture I want to turn to is in 1 Peter chapter 3 in verse 12. So that's 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 12. It says, For the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those that do evil. So if we do evil, or if we regard iniquity in our heart, God is turned away from us, and he is against us. However, if we're righteous, if by faith in Christ we've been born again and we are now walking in Jesus and we're living a righteous life, then his ears are open to our prayer. And that's why it says in First John, if our heart does not condemn us, then we have confidence toward God and we know that we have the things we've asked for. Now this puts us in such a difficult position. Because frankly, what we covered yesterday, and I'm going to ask Alexandra to again highlight portions of this, is that you cannot receive the Holy Spirit baptism 
while walking in sin. It can't happen. In the book of of Acts, Peter says to the crowd, Repent and be baptized. That is, die out to yourself, be born from above, and in the name of Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you, your children, and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. Has the Lord God called you to follow him? If you're walking in sin, you are not eligible for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, review, Alexandra, some of the highlights that you shared yesterday. Yeah, so I'll just briefly go through a few things. You can go back and listen to the entire message on our website, nationalprayerchapel.com. The title of that message is, Who Was in the Upper Room? Who Was in the Upper Room? So relevant to our discussion today is that sinners were not in the upper room, and we know this because of the condition that Jesus gave for receiving the Holy Spirit in John chapter 14, verses 15 through 17. Jesus said, If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, or advocate, or comforter, that he may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you, and will be in you. So again, we're speaking about this second work that happens after a person is born again, where they then make the commitment that they're going to accept the gospel, that they're going to accept the Great Commission as their life work, so that whatever they're doing, whether it's a whether it's in business, whether it's in teaching, whatever they're doing, the main focus of their life is the gospel commission. Once you've made that decision and you've been born again, you can now go to God and ask for the power to fulfill the Great Commission. That's what we're speaking of when we speak of receiving the Spirit of Truth, the Comforter, the Advocate, who will be in us and not just with us. So what we saw in this passage that I just read from John 14 is in order to receive this baptism of the Holy Spirit, we first have to love God, specifically love Jesus, and keep his commandments. And he further says the world cannot receive the Holy Spirit because it neither sees him nor knows him. So Jesus is saying it is actually not possible for someone who does not love God and keep his commandments to receive the Holy Spirit. And we know secondly, it says in Acts 2-4, when the Holy Spirit did come on the day of Pentecost to the upper room, they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So we know that if every person in that room was filled with the Holy Ghost, that means they had all met the conditions laid out in John 14, meaning they all loved Jesus and were keeping his commandments. Did you want to jump in on that? Is there anything Mm -hmm. else you'd like to share quickly? Uh, I just wanted to again highlight 
you can really see that there's two sequential works when you look at Matthew chapter 3 or when you look at Acts 1 where it speaks first about the baptism of John which was a baptism unto repentance and then secondly about the baptism that comes from Jesus which is a baptism of fire and of the Holy Spirit so we have strong scriptural evidence that there are two separate works and that they have two separate functions so the first one is unto repentance so that you can enter the kingdom of God in the first place and then once you're in the kingdom of God there's then the second baptism to empower you to fill you with the person of the Holy Spirit who will live his life through you so that Jesus can live in you just as he lived in his own body and that's how the kingdom goes forth on the earth and that's how the Lord's prayer is fulfilled that his kingdom would come on the earth as it is in heaven and how his prayer is fulfilled that God's name would be hallowed or holy through the earth and so what we've actually seen happen in the American church is that as sin entered the church and the teaching of the pastors and the bishops was that you could not stop sinning, you would be sinning the rest of your life, and that you had the imputed righteousness of Jesus instead of the imparted righteousness of Jesus, that you would always just be a sinner the power of the Holy Spirit did not come. And so the American church was left to its own design, and it was dying. And so there were decisions made, very deliberate decisions, through the church growth movement and through other movements, the relational theology movement in the Presbyterian church, called Faith at Work. All of these humanistic designs began to come into the church so that men and women could have their felt needs met. And so many churches sent out surveys to their neighborhoods asking what their needs were and how they responded, and they discovered that the people in the neighborhood wanted the cross gone. They wanted the church to be open for them to come in their flip-flops and their shorts, they wanted the church to be a comfortable place. They were not interested in a church that was about repentance and holiness and sacrificing your life for the purpose of Jesus Christ and the gospel of the kingdom. And so the church discovered in America that by doing concerts and special guest speakers that would entertain the people, by bringing in the videos and multimedia that they could win people to come to church. The problem is the people came, but they were simply vaccinated against the true gospel of Jesus. And so now we come and we say, okay, let's do a national day of prayer. Okay, how do we juice up the national day of prayer and let's get people to pray? And it becomes another marketing tool for the church. So the real issue here is that everyone who is saved is only saved because they've had an encounter with the Holy Spirit and God has saved them. 
However, if the church is regularly and habitually grieving the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit will not be there. And so people will not have that encounter and they will not be converted. Now, it's just amazing to me that there even are born-again Christians in America at all. I mean, it's, it's a sovereign act of God because by human standards with how the teaching with the i mean the these ministers that are being produced by seminaries that have just been infiltrated with this doctrine of the sinning christian the fact that anyone is being saved at all in spite of this is just a miracle of god but that's why it's so important that we repent and Put ourselves in a position where God can send his Holy Spirit because we can't convert people without the Holy Spirit. And revival will not come to America without honest repentance. So again, it's not a national day of prayer that we need. It's a national day of repentance, of honest Repentance, not some big deal where some famous person announces we're going to do a national day of repentance. It has to be moved individually in every person's heart who begins to hunger after God as God comes down. So I see this on every hand. Churches borrowing millions of dollars to build huge facilities, believing that if they build it, the people will come. I see multimedia companies that call themselves Christian, but they've incorporated all of the business techniques of the world. They become for-profit corporations. They cease being Christian organizations and become secular organizations yes so for example what happens is it becomes about creating my church brand building my branding having certain types of marketing and just think about what would have happened if instead of going to the upper room if the disciples had pooled their money and said okay let's take out a loan and buy a building do you think the holy spirit would have come absolutely not he would have been very offended but that's what we're doing here in washington dc now this isn't true in other parts of the country i've been to where churches tend to own their property outright and keep it for generations but it is a phenomenon i've noticed particularly in washington dc it's like this craze to build so everyone wants a brand new facility and they're willing to go millions of dollars in debt for it. And there's no biblical precedent for that. And it's very grieving to God. And we've become big business. And the Holy Spirit is grieved. And this is why the Muslims were able to purchase this Presbyterian church facility over on Holy Road. Because they built this thing thinking that people would come and they didn't. And they had no way to pay for it. And so they... The Presbyterian Church went bankrupt and for, the property was foreclosed and the Muslims bought it. Well, I want to go to an Old Testament story with you very quickly in the time we have left today. 
because it's a perfect example of what we're speaking about and the result is going to be the same if there is no heeding of the word of God and we continue to rush forward in our human strength and human ability to try to build the church. Now we have the tools that have never previously been available to the church with multimedia, with television, with the internet. The problem is the message that we're putting out is a false gospel. It is not calling us to repent. And the other problem is the lack of the Holy Spirit to empower even those things that are spoken that are true. You know, there's nothing wrong with radio or television or other formats if they're empowered by the Holy Spirit. But that's just not happening. So look with me at the story found in 1 Samuel, the first chapter. The first indication that we have a church pastor, a priest, who's in trouble with the Lord, is when this dear woman, Hannah, comes to pray and pour out her broken heart before the Lord. And she is confronted by Eli as being a wicked woman of being drunk. And he says to her, how long will you keep on getting drunk? There's obviously a complete lack of discernment in the leadership at Shiloh. Shiloh is the primary center of worship for all of Israel. It is where the tabernacle of God is established. And also where the Ark of the Covenant is kept. And so Hannah turns away, encouraged that the Lord has heard her prayer, and that she will give this son that is born to Eli to the work of God. Now, in the second chapter, verse 12, Eli's sons were wicked men. They had no regard for the Lord. Now, Eli's sons are also priests. They're the associate pastors. They are disregarding the rules that govern the meat that can be eaten from the sacrifices. And they are literally bullying the people. In verse 17, this sin of the young men was very great in the Lord's sight, for they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. And so you have now Samuel, the boy, righteous and holy, totally given over to the Lord God of heaven. You have the priest's sons, and they are wicked men who have no regard for the things of God that they are ministering in. It is simply business for them. It is a livelihood for them. And you have Eli, who totally lacks discernment. And so then, in verse 22, Eli, who was very old, heard about everything his sons were doing in Israel and how they were sleeping with the women who served at the entrance to the tent of meeting. 
These are married men, and they are now being caught committing adultery with the women who are working. So the whole staff of the Shiloh Church has become corrupt. Now he rebukes them. Why do you do such things? I hear from all the people about these wicked deeds of yours. No, my sons, it's not a good report that I hear spreading among the Lord's people. If a man sins against another man, God may mediate for him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who will intercede for him? His sons, however, did not listen to their father's rebuke, for it was the Lord's will to put them to death. So in other words, Eli saw the sin that was happening in the church, but he would not cut those men off. He allowed them to continue to function in their role as priests, even though he knew they were utterly wicked. And so the wickedness continues to grow in the church. And so finally, the Lord sends a man of God to Eli. And he said, Did I not clearly reveal myself to your father's house when they were in Egypt under Pharaoh? I chose your father out of the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear the ephod in my presence. I also gave you your father's house, all the offerings made with fire by the Israelites. Why do you scorn my sacrifice and offering that I prescribed for my dwelling? Why do you honor your sons more than me by fattening yourself on the choice parts of every offering made by my people Israel? So now we see that in this Shiloh church, not only is the church staff corrupt, the senior pastor is profiting from this corruption because it feeds into his comfortable lifestyle. And God is angry with this. And he begins to pronounce judgment against the house of Eli. Verse 34, And what happens to your sons, Hophni and Phinehas, will be assigned to you. They will both die on the same day. I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and my mind. Now please, we have a picture here of the first church of Israel at Shiloh. And the priests and the associates are not walking clean before God. The people know it. But as it is in America, the pastors are being taught that they should speak every Sunday an encouraging word to God's people. An encouraging word. I saw on a bus a great sign from WGTS FM radio an encouraging word 
I said always encouraging. Always encouraging. Well, that hurts my heart because I started on radio on WGTS, but they've gone now to a wicked format of worldly so-called Christian music, and it's very popular. Many people listen to it every day. But because it fits the culture and the lie of the culture, there is no rebuke for the sin of our culture. So let's just put this into perspective. What we're dealing with here is we're dealing with what in our context would be an associate pastor, two of them who are sleeping with other women to whom they're not married. The pastor knows about it and he's not doing anything. And this is actually what is going on in many churches today. That's what we saw in the recent hashtag movements with church too and me too is we see that there has been a persistent refusal of the church leadership to actually deal in a righteous manner with sexual sin in the church and many of it much of it is abuse because the women are not even of an age to consent so this is very disturbing because we look on the other hand at the recent resignations or firings of men from major news organizations because of sexual harassment. We can look at the Larry Nassar trial and finally this man is being brought to justice. So what's disturbing is that we're seeing that the world is behaving in a way that is more righteous than the church when it comes to dealing with sin in, in itself. And I spoke at a church in the spirit of revival and calling for repentance. And I talked about very specific sin that I knew about in that congregation, going outside after the service and doing drugs. Uh, leadership people involved in alcoholism and fornication I spoke about a number of very specific sins that I had become aware of in that church. People were livid. They were furious. How dare you talk about this publicly? Because they don't want to even begin to think that there could possibly be church sin that would block the presence of God. And yet, it is obvious to anyone who walks into that church that there is an absolute absence of the presence of the Holy Spirit in that place. Yes, I mean, we would expect if you were at your workplace and you went outside and you started doing some drugs and your boss found you, they would probably call the police and you would be arrested. And you would think that that was a reasonable thing for your boss to do because he's finding you with illegal drugs on his property when you're supposed to be working. And yet, how is it that people can go out after a Christian service and be dealing heroin and that no one is calling the police? This is a serious problem that God's not just... This is huge. God can't overlook something like that. Or the, or the man who came to me from a very large mega church here in Washington and said, 
I'm a new Christian. I do cocaine. I can't break it. I went to my senior pastor, and I asked him to pray for me that we could break this cocaine habit. And I said, and what did your pastor say to you? He said, don't worry about it. Don't be concerned about it. You're saved. You're on your way to heaven. And if God wants to deal with your cocaine habit, he'll deal with that at a later time. Relax. Enjoy being a Christian. Well, these kinds of things are are common in the church today in America. But then there's also the pride, the backbiting, the gossip, the love of all of the worldly sports, the love of all of the things that are of the world, of the flesh, and of the devil. And now we're going to have a national day of prayer? And we think God is going to hear us as we pray as the American church? Are you kidding me? He's not going to hear. And it's obvious he has withheld his Holy Spirit from us. Most churches I go in try to create an atmosphere that they think is conducive to the Holy Spirit by liturgical dance and a wonderful praise and worship leader and a full band or orchestra. But it doesn't cover the absence of weeping over sin and conviction of sin. Confession. Confession of sin. And so it's a charade. That's why we're saying today, we're not calling you or inviting you to call this radio broadcast to pray for our nation. How could I dare do that unless I knew for certain that you were not walking in any known sin? We'd just be wasting our time. That's why we're saying it's time for national repentance. And let it begin with me and with you. Let it begin with us. Let it begin with the church. And let me add here that if you are walking clean with God, we have the example of Daniel in the book of Daniel, where we see that in his prayer for revival, he confessed the sin of the country. So there is a biblical precedent for us who do have the discernment to see the falling apart of our church, of our culture. There is a place for us to go to God and confess that sin on behalf of those who refuse to confess it themselves. Now that does not save those people, that does not excuse them, but it is a door that God can use to bring revival by sending his Holy Spirit to bring conviction of that sin on those individuals. So today I'm not going to try in any manner to comfort you in the midst of your sin. But I'm telling you very plainly from the word of God that God will not hear your prayers. They are an abomination unto him. If you're walking in rebellion and sin against Jesus, if you are knowingly rebelling against the word of God to your heart, and only you can judge that. If you're walking in that rebellious, arrogant, 
hard-hearted way, then God will not hear your prayer. And there is really only one prayer that God will hear from a sinner. That is a prayer of humble repentance. Confessing fully, taking full responsibility, and opening our heart fully to God and asking to be washed by his blood and to be made whole. But many of you have learned that you can hang with the world, be loved and popular, actively engaged in all kinds of Christian work, be recognized and applauded as a wonderful Christian, even claim that you are baptized in the Holy Spirit. But there is no real evidence that that is true. Because you're lying. This for me is heartbreaking. And it's even more heartbreaking when you look at what happened in this first church of Israel, the Shiloh. The Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. The Philistines were very powerful. And 4,000 men died on the Israel side, on Israel's side. They were defeated that day. And so they said, let's bring the Ark of the Lord's Covenant from Shiloh. Let's bring it out on the battlefield so that the mighty hand of God will be with us and will defeat our enemies. So the people sent men to Shiloh, and they brought back the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord Almighty, who's enthroned between the cherubim. And Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. And when the Ark of the Lord's Covenant came into the camp, all of Israel raised such a great shout that the ground shook. The Philistines heard this, and they said, What's happening in the Hebrew camp? And they learned that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp and the Philistines were terrified. They said, a God has come into the camp. We're in trouble. Nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us. Who will deliver us from the hand of this mighty God? They went to war the next day. The Philistines fought and defeated the Israelites. The slaughter was very great. They lost 30,000 foot soldiers that day in Israel. And they captured the Ark of God. And Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, both died. They were killed in the battle. Now, that same day, a Benjamite ran from the battle line and went to Shiloh. His clothes were torn and dust on his head. Eli was sitting on a chair by the side of the road watching because his heart was faint. It feared for the ark of God. 
when the man entered the town and told what had happened, the whole town set up a cry. Eli heard the outcry. What's the meaning of the uproar? The man hurried over to Eli. Now, Eli was an old man, 98 years old. He was blind. He told Eli, I've just come from the battle line. What happened, my son? Israel fled before the Philistines, and the army has suffered heavy losses. Also your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. When he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell backward off his chair by the side of the road. His neck was broken, and he died, for he was an old man and very heavy. He had led Israel for 40 years. His daughter-in-law, the wife of Phineas, was pregnant near the time of delivery. When she heard the news that the ark of God had been captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she went into labor and gave birth, but was overcome by labor pains. As she was dying, the woman attending her said, Don't despair, you've given birth to a son. But she did not respond or pay attention. She named the boy Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel. Because of the capture of the ark of God and the death of her father-in-law and her husband, the glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. Now we know later in this story, God returned the ark, and for the next 20 years, it was not used in any kind of worship service. It was put in storage. Now, when I look at this tragic scene, can I expect God to do anything less to the church in America with all of its beautiful buildings and facilities and well-trained pastors walking in deliberate disobedience before him? not meeting the conditions to be baptized in the Holy Spirit? My heart is very troubled, for I see that the Lord has written Ichabod over the American church. And I recognize that there is a time now, a short time, that we've been given by the Lord to repent, to turn aside from sin, and to meet the conditions that we might be baptized in the Holy Spirit. So I ask you today, will you just continue blindly going forward in the arrogance of your American lifestyle? Or will you humble your heart? Will you pray? Will you turn from your wicked ways? that God should turn and heal this land. Almighty God, our president has called this the National Day of Prayer. Lord, you're not going to hear our prayers because we've walked in sin and arrogance before you. Almighty God, Would you move with 
repentance in our hearts. In the name of Jesus, amen. Well, we're out of time for today. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenley, pastor of the National Prayer Chapel. With me in studio, my sweetheart. Alexandra Greenlee. You can listen to this message again on nationalprayerchapel.com. And you're welcome to go and look at all of the past messages calling us to repent over the last weeks. Can revival be prayed down? Yes but it begins with our repentance and humbling our hearts. I love you. God bless you. We'll talk to you soon. To keep you from falling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy with great joy now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory